المشركين السلام عليكم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد I'm starting on the assumption that everyone can hear me okay and then inshallah ta'ala my sound is is audible to everyone if there is a problem with my sound please let me know otherwise I'm just going to proceed uh, on that assumption so last week alhamdulillah we finished our second uh, part of the two-part series of a special that we were doing on the life and tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala so a couple of weeks back we looked at his biography the biography of Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah and his life and, and his uh, seeking of knowledge and some of his works and so on uh, and we know that Imam Al-Qurtubi came from the uh, the area of Al-Andalus and he was alive around the time of what was a very uh, turbulent time in the history of that part of the world and that part of the Muslim Empire because he lived during the time of the fall of Cordoba uh, which was obviously his home city, his homeland and then thereafter he traveled and he, he moved to Egypt and that is where he would remain until he passed away rahimahullah ta'ala and obviously he wasn't the only one from amongst the scholars and, and even the general Muslim folk who were caught up in that uh, that part of history um, but it's, it's something which uh, you know which shows subhanAllah the trials and the tribulations that people have to go through throughout the uh, throughout the ages and then last week what we did is we did the methodology and uh, a look at the tafsir of Imam al-Qurtubi and we spoke about the methodology of Imam al-Qurtubi ta'ala and the way that he attacks or the way that he tackles tafsir if we like um, and, and, and some of the benefits of his tafsir and some of the points that he does and some of the ways that he that he mentions different positions and opinions and the way that he makes tarjih amongst them and the way that he chooses what is stronger or more correct or more authentic in terms of tafsir. So that's essentially what we've been doing for the last couple of weeks and that's like a special as you know and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to resume with our tafsir and we begin a new surah today and that is surah al-fajr and surah al-fajr is a surah that speaks predominantly about the uh, the rewards and punishments of people the consequences and ramifications of people and the choices that they have made in this dunya in terms of their iman or their lack thereof, their disbelief. So Surah Al-Balad was a surah that spoke about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's blessings and his, uh, you know, his, the many things that Allah Azza has given and how people don't use those blessings in a way that is befitting many a time, but instead their own self-amazement, their own self-worth leads them to think and believe that they have no need of anyone, let alone Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Surah Al-Fajr has a therefore a direct link between this surah there is a direct direct link between this surah and surah al-balad in the sense that this surah speaks about the ramifications of those choices that people make uh, so this speaks about the consequences and and, and the uh, either the reward or the punishment of people and we'll see this because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after taking the oaths that he takes he mentions some of the past nations and it is one of the first uh, mentions after surah al-shams in which we briefly have the mention of the people of salih in the nation of Thamud. This surah is a surah that also speaks about some of those past nations. We have the mention of the likes of Ad and the people of Pharaoh and so on. And so this is also from the mention of those past nations that, that, that existed 
many centuries ago because they also made certain choices. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Quran the ramifications and the consequences of those choices in this dunya before Yawm Al-Qiyamah. In this dunya before Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then speak about the or some of the etiquettes and some of the uh, the attributes that people have. Uh, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions towards the end of this surah what is the ultimate judgment and the ultimate consequence of the choices that people make because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will speak about the issues of death and yawm al-qiyamah and the coming of Allah azza wa for judgment between people and the counting that will take place on that day. This surah, Surah Al-Fajr, beginning with our introduction as we often do, uh, has two names that you will find concerning it in the books of uh, the early books of hadith and the early books of tafsir, the early books of narration. The first of those names is the name that we, by which we call the surah today. It's the well-known name for the surah, and that is Surah Al-Fajr. And that's mentioned in a number of, of books uh, from the early books of hadith and tafsir. It's mentioned by Ibn Qutaybah. It's mentioned by Imam Al-Tirmidhi and Al-Nasai, Imam Al-Tabari, Ibn Abi Hatim, Al-Baghawi, Ibn Atiyah, Ibn Kathir and Al-Shawkani, so these are some of the scholars and some of the authors of books of hadith and tafsir that refer to this surah as being Surah Al-Fajr. The second name by which this surah is known is the first verse of this surah. And as we've mentioned, I think probably countless times now, uh, it is a very common, uh, very common uh, form of, of referring to a surah amongst the scholars of tafsir and hadith, the early scholars that they would often mention the entirety of the first verse or a portion of the first verse if the first verse was very long. So with this particular surah, the first verse is very short. And so the second name by which the surah is known is Wal-Fajr, Suratu Wal-Fajr. And that is mentioned by Imam Abdul Razak al-Sana'ani in his tafsir, Ibn al-Mubarak in his book on, on, on tafsir and Quran, and by Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala in his sahih, rahimahullah jami'an. And so these are some of the scholars who refer to the surah as being wal-fajr. And clearly the difference uh, between the two is, is very slight. It is only the wow at the beginning of that particular verse. So surah al-fajr and surah wal-fajr. Those are the two names by which this surah is known. In terms of its revelation and its uh, its its time period in which it was revealed, is it, is it a Makki surah or is it a Madani surah? Then the position of the vast majority of the scholars of Islam is that it is a Makki surah. And in fact, it is almost by ijma', almost by consensus. And as we will mention shortly, there were even a number of scholars of, of, of tafsir who even said by ijma', by consensus, it is a Makki surah. However, there are some mentions you will find, some you know, some uh, mention found in some of the books of tafsir that there is a slight difference of opinion that some scholars said that it was a Madani surah. But the vast majority, to the extent that that position is almost disregarded. It's mentioned in some of the works of Tafsir, but it is almost disregarded uh, as being a, a, a strong position. And so that's why you will find a number of the scholars who either will say that it is a Makki surah and suffice with that, or they will go a step further and they will say by ijma' by consensus, it is a Makki surah. So from amongst those scholars who said that it is a Makki surah, by ijma' by consensus and agreement of the scholars, was Ibn al-Jawzi, for example. And also Al-Imam al-Shawkani, rahimahullah, in his tafsir Fathul Qadir. And likewise Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala. These are from amongst the scholars who say by ijma', by consensus, and by uh, by agreement of the scholars, 
this surah is a surah that is a Makki surah. And then there were others who didn't mention that it is a point of agreement or consensus, but they mentioned it as being a Makki surah without mentioning any other opinion. So from amongst those scholars was Ibn Hazm, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Imam al-Baghawi, in his tafsir Ibn Atiyah, in his tafsir al-Ibn Kathir, in his tafsir alayhim rahmatullahi jami'an. So where does the difference of opinion therefore come for? It is something which Ibn Atiyah mentions in his tafsir. And Ibn Atiyah, as we know, died in the year 546 of the Hijrah. So he predates, as we know, Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala. And Ibn Atiyah often mentions positions in his tafsir. Ibn Atiyah is a very good tafsir. And inshallah, it's going to be at some point in the future one of the, the tafsir that we look at in terms of the biography of its author and in terms of the methodology of its tafsir. It's often considered to be uh, you know, like you have books of tafsir, uh, and then you have amongst those scholars of tafsir, because there are many scholars of tafsir, some of the scholars who are considered to be muhaqqiqin, some of the scholars who other scholars considered to be, or the scholars generally considered to be people who reached a position where they could edit and verify, and they could choose and reconcile between those opinions and choose how, uh, why there's a difference of opinion and so on. Those people in Arabic are normally called muhaqqiq, and a muhaqqiq is someone who precisely details and verifies something, right? That's what it literally means. And so tahqiq in, in, in modern vernacular, in modern language, if you're going, for example, through a book and you find that there is a tahqiq or someone asks you who made the tahqiq of that book, it basically means who edited and verified that book. That's a modern form of that. That essentially means someone who in our day and age now, as we alluded to last week and the week before when we were speaking about tafsir al-Qurtubi, it's someone who essentially goes through the old manuscripts that you find of a book and they're verifying it and making sure that it's correct and authentic and making sure that it's precise and accurate in terms of its modern publication. That's called tahqiq and it's something very common in the Arab world if people are doing their masters or their PhDs, they will often find a book that has yet to be published. They're still in manuscript form and their PhD thesis will be to take that work and to do a study on it in terms of its editing and verification and looking at some of the issues that are being mentioned therein and so forth. And so. Uh, the vast majority of these books that you see around me are books that have verifications because nowadays it is rare that you will find a book that hasn't been edited in some way or another. There's some person who's, who's done the editing job, whether it's a good job or a bad job, whether it's you know something which is uh, which is of a high standard or low standard, that's a different issue. But the point is that they, there is something which very common today. That is called tahqiq. And the person who does it is called a muhaqqiq. But when the scholars say the muhaqqiqin, and they're referring to their own circle in the olden days, right? They're referring to, for example, in the sense of hadith or tafsir or fiqh and so on. The muhaqqiqin are those preeminent scholars, the highest of their class that may have come. So, for example, someone like Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala, who in his positions, for example, in the Hanbali madhab, is considered to be one of the major points of reference for that madhab. Right? Because even though he came, you know, he, he died in 728 of the Hijrah, so he came like hundreds of years after Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala, but his level and mastery and proficiency and his ability to gather all of the different uh, positions and opinions of the Hanbali Madhab made him a reference point and then the people who came after him considered him to be a muhaqqiq. And there are many people like that the scholars return to and considered to be an authority in that particular field. For example, in Hadith, it would probably be the likes of Ibn Hajar would probably be a very good example of that in Imam Nawawi and others from amongst those scholars. So each field has those people. When it comes to tafsir, there are also people that we consider to be muhaqqiqin. So from the earliest ones that you'll probably mention is probably someone like Imam al-Tabari because for his 
time period and for the time that he lived in and, and, and that era that he was in, he's someone, as we mentioned before, who didn't just gather the narrations of tafsir like others did, like Ibn Abi Hatim and others, but he actually commentated on them, right? He actually mentioned, and that is a weak opinion or that is a strong opinion that this seems to be more authentic or less authentic and so on. And so he's essentially making tahqiq of what is a mass amount, a great amount of narrations from that time. And then there are other scholars who also uh, you know, are in that vein in terms of being muhaqiqin in the science of tafsir. From amongst them, often one of the ones that is considered to be from amongst them is Ibn Atiyah. Rahimahullah ta'ala, that's, that's where we went off on this tangent. Coming back to Ibn Atiyah, Rahimahullah ta'ala. So his tafsir is an amazing tafsir and I hope inshallah ta'ala that at some point in the future we will be able to do a more in-depth look of uh, at this tafsir. Uh, Ibn Atiyah, Rahimahullah ta'ala, when he's speaking and he often mentions these points and that's what I was trying to get at. So he will often mention positions that you don't necessarily find in many of the other books of tafsir. Um, because he, he made a point of mentioning certain things that he considered to be important, even if he, for example, considered it to be maybe a weak position or not a very strong position, but he would mention them because he considered it to be important that they be mentioned. So he said concerning the revelation of the surah, he said, He said that it is a Makki surah by, uh, according to the majority of the scholars of tafsir. But then he mentions that Abu Amr al-Dani, Abu Amr al-Dani, as we mentioned before, is the famous scholar of Quran, Qiraat, uh, you know, like he's, he's one of the uh, major scholars, especially of Al-Andalus, which is where Al-Qurtubi and Ibn Atiyah and these scholars came from. Abu Amr al-Dani predates them, and he's someone who was one of the preeminent scholars of Quran in that region of the world. He said, uh, he mentioned in his Quran that some of the scholars said, Hiya Madaniya, that this surah is a Madani revelation. And then Ibn Atiyah said, as like commentary on this position, And the first position, meaning that it's a Makki surah, is more well-known and it is more authentic. And in fact, Abu Amr al-Dani himself mentions the position that it is a Makki surah. But he says that some of the scholars said, right? and I don't know if he names them, I don't think that he names them, and Allah knows best. And that's why Ibn Ashur in his tafsir, he said concerning this surah, it is a Makki surah by consensus of the scholars. Except for that which Ibn Atiyah mentioned from Abu Amr al-Dani. That he mentioned that some of the scholars said that it is a Madani surah. But as you can see, Ibn Ashur himself, Ibn Ashur himself said, by ijma' or by ittifaq, by consensus of the scholars, it is a Makki surah. And so that's why I said, or that's what I meant by, by when I said that the majority of the scholars seem to uh, almost dismiss that position of there being a difference of opinion uh, in this particular issue of it being a Makki or a Madani surah. The vast majority say that it is a, or more or less everyone says that it is a Makki surah. And that's why you will find scholars that came later like Ash-Shawkani, like Ibn Kathir, as they often do, they dismiss what they consider to be not a very strong source of difference of opinion in these issues. And that's why Ibn Kathir often will just mention that it's a Makki surah or a Madani surah, unless he considers there to literally be a very strong difference of opinion, he may mention the other position. And the Shawkani often does the same as well. If he considers the difference to be very weak, not very significant, not something worthy of mention, then they would just stick to the position that they consider to be the strongest, which in this case is that it is a Makki surah, and Allah Azza wa knows best. And Surah Al-Fajr consists of 30 verses. 
consists of 30 verses. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins, A'udhu billahi min shaytanir rajim, bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by saying, Wal-fajr. And Allah azza wa takes an oath by the dawn or by the daybreak. Right? And all of the translations more or less will choose one or the other, by the dawn or by the daybreak. This is one of those surahs from the Quran in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by taking an oath. And by now we've covered a number of the surahs of the Quran uh, that uh, that begin in that way, you know, from Wal Asr and Wal Duha and Wal Lady, Ida Yagsha and Wal Shamsi, Waduhaha, and other surahs that begin by Allah Azza wa taking an oath uh, at the beginning of the surah. That is one of the most common openings of the Quran, of the Quranic surahs as we know. So there are a number of ways in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commonly opens or begins surahs of the Quran. For example, the huruf al-muqatta'ah, right? those letters that you have uh, at the beginning of certain surahs like alif Lam Mim and alif Lam ra and uh, ha Mim, right? those surahs, that's a very common opening in the sense that there's a number of surahs that are open in that way. Uh, another common opening as we've mentioned before is the hamdalah, that Allah begins by praise of himself. Like in Surah Al-Fatiha, Surah Al-An'am, and Surah Fatir, and other surahs of the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins by praising himself, by saying, Alhamdulillah. And from the most common, and it may even be the most common form of opening of a surah, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by something. Allah azza wa begins the surah by taking a number of oaths. And so we've covered a number of, of, uh, of, of examples of that. And this is another example that would fall within that category as well. So Allah begins by taking an oath, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the Fajr. Now the word Fajr here is something which some of the scholars of different uh, opinions, or some of the scholars differed in terms of exactly what is meant by the word Fajr. The position of the majority of the scholars is that it's referring to the normal Fajr time. So the Fajr of the morning. Fajr al-Subh, as, Ibn, as Imam al-Tabari ta'ala, says in his tafsir, that's the position that he chooses, that it's referring to the normal Fajr. So the Fajr time being, obviously, the dawn time, right? The time that we get up to pray Salatul Fajr. That's the position that Imam al-Tabari ta'ala, chooses. Uh, but some of the scholars differed. Some of the scholars, and this is a position of, of many of the scholars of Islam, it's reported as being one of the positions of Ibn Abbas, Radiallahu uh, anhuma, one of the positions of the likes of Ikrima, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and many of the scholars of, of Islam chose this position. It's a position that was later than chosen as the strongest position by the likes of Ibn Kathir as well, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. That is referring to the Fajr as the well known Fajr time. Uh, another position amongst the scholars is that it refers to the whole day, it refers to all of daylight, so the whole day. And it's similar for those of you that remember when we were doing the tafsir of Surah Al Asr. We mentioned that some of the scholars differed as to whether it's referring to Asr as in the general concept of time or whether it's referring to Asr which is the Asr of the Salah, right? the time of that particular time of the day in which we pray Salatul Asr. And we mentioned the difference of opinion that some of the scholars had concerning that. This is somewhat similar in the sense that some of the scholars said that the Fajr is mentioned because it is the beginning of the day, right? it's the start of the day, that's when the sun now starts to come out and starts to rise. Uh, but the meaning of it is that it's referring to all of the day. It's referring to all of the day. But the majority of the scholars said no. It's referring to the actual Fajr time.
But then amongst those scholars, there were some who went even more specific. And they said that actually what's refer, being referred to is not just any Fajr, but a particular day of Fajr, or a particular Fajr of a particular day, or, or the Fajr of a particular day. Right. So it's referring to not just any day, or any Fajr of any day, but the Fajr time of a specific day. And that specific day being the day of Yawm Al-Nahr, right, which is the day of the 10th of the Hijjah, the day that the majority of people will be celebrating uh, Eid Al-Adha. But the people of Hajj, obviously, would be returning from Muzdalifah to Mina, and that's the day that they uh, perform their major acts and rites of Hajj. So that's the day that they sacrifice. It's the day that they shave their heads. It's the day that they go back to uh, Mecca and make, uh, make Tawaf and Sa'i and so on. So that's the day that is called Yawm Al-Nahr. Right? And Nahr means the day of spitting blood, the day of slaughter, because it's the day of sacrifice that the people, the Hajjaj, the pilgrims, offer their sacrifices on that day. And this uh, stipulation, if you like, or, or making it exclusive to that day, is one of the narrations of Mujahid, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, and the famous scholar of Tafsir, Masruq. Mujahid and Masruq, and I think Muhammad ibn Ka'ab and others, some others said something similar as well. And there is even a fourth position, and that is that it's referring again to a specific, uh, to a specific uh, Fajr, but not the day of Eid, Al-Adha, but rather the first of day of the year, so the first of Muharram. The first of Muharram, and this is something which was narrated from Qatada, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. But that position seems to be a weak position, Allah knows best. Why? Because as we mentioned, or we may not have mentioned, but anyway, the the setting of the of the Muslim calendar, the Islamic calendar, the Hijri calendar as we know it, wasn't done in the time of the Prophet So for it to be the to be considered to be the first, uh, you know, Fajr of the year, which would be the first day of Muharram, which is the position of or what, what is narrated from Qatada, Taala, would mean that it was well known amongst the Muslims of the time of the companions that Muharram is the beginning of the Muslim calendar. But we know that the in the time of the Prophet wasallam, they didn't have a calendar. As such, they had the names of the days and they had the names of the months, but they didn't have a year, a yearly calendar in the sense that they didn't have year one, year two, a starting point for what is considered to be an annual calendar. And it was only in the time of Umar that that began. Right? And there's different narrations as to how it began. One of them being the position that he wanted to write to Abu Musa al-Ashari, who was one of his governors in Basra at the time, and he wanted to write letters to him. And he realized that after a while it would become confusing because if he said to him, refer to my previous letter that I wrote to you, for example, in Safar or in Ramadan, does that mean the Ramadan that just went or the Ramadan before that? or the, Which Ramadan is it referring to? Right? And some narrations say that it was the, the, the situation of a man who came with a case and his case was going to be delayed. Like Umar told him to come back at another time because they needed to wait for something. So he said to him, come back in Dhul Qa'da or Dhul Hijjah. And then he thought to himself, but if the man doesn't come back, this Dhul Hijjah comes back next Dhul Hijjah. Right? It becomes confusing. And so some of the companions uh, were of the position that they should have a calendar. And then he asked the companions to choose um, a, a, a year or a starting point. And so they differed over that as well. Some of them said it should be the birth of the Prophet wasallam. Some of them should, said it should be the beginning of, of prophethood, the first year of prophethood and so on. And it was, according to those narrations, a position of Ali radiallahu and his advice that it should be the beginning of the hijrah because that is when the Muslim, uh, if you like, the first Muslim land is established. Like Medina becomes the capital of the Muslims. The Muslims now have their own land. They have their own system. They have everything by themselves. And so therefore it becomes 
you know, is, is something which is a good starting point. And Umar liked that position. He liked that advice, and that's what, what it became. And that's why it is called the Hijri calendar, right? That's where it comes from. And so the first of the Hijra is the Hijra of the Prophet وسلم, from Mecca to Medina. That's where the calendar begins. And anything before that is considered to be the 10th year of prophethood, right? The 10th year in Mecca before the Hijra, and so on and so on. It is done as the Arabs used to do before, which is that they would link their years to events. So they would link their years to events. So they would say, for example, the year of the elephant, the year of the drought, the year of the famine, the year of the plague, and so on. And they would hold certain events to be landmarks by which they would then have some kind of measure of what year it was. And that's why we, in the, when we speak about the birth of the Prophet wasallam, it is said that he was born in Amul Fil, the year of the elephant, meaning when the army of the elephant came, as we mentioned in the tafsir of Surah Al-Fil. So that's why many of the scholars dismissed this position of Qatada, rahimahullah ta'ala. They said no, because that's something which takes place many years after the death of the Prophet So for it to be known at that time that it would be the first Fajr of the year doesn't seem to be likely and Allah knows best. So the position of the majority of the scholars is not to, uh, not to define it or not to specify a certain Fajr of a certain day, but you leave it as a general meaning. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't give it a specific meaning, doesn't say that it's a specific Fajr, but rather he leaves it as an open uh, position, right? as an open position, and so therefore it's something which, uh, you know, which, uh, which the scholars left also as an open position. Right? The majority of the scholars are of the position that refers to any Fajr of any day, because Allah Azawajal is taking an oath by the actual Fajr, not a specific day, but by the actual Fajr. But I think that Allah Azawajal knows best the position of the likes of Mujahid and others who said that it refers to the day of Hajj, is because of the tafsir that will then follow now. When we speak about uh, verse number 2 and verse number 3, it is connected because a number of the scholars made tafsir of those verses and they related them also to the days of Hajj, right? to the days of Hajj and the early or the first 10 days of the month of the Hijjah. And so that seems to be perhaps where that came from and Allah knows best. But the position of the majority is that it's referring to Fajr. And no doubt the time of Fajr is a blessed time and it's a time in which uh, in which there is a great deal of blessing because the Prophet ﷺ told us Burika li ummati fi bukuriha. Our ummah has been blessed, blessed in the early morning and the Prophet ﷺ speaks about the suhoor in a number of hadith whether it's to do with fasting or generally that, waqta, that, that time of saha which is the pre-dawn which is the time just before dawn is something which is considered to be a good time not least because it is the time in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala descends to the lowest heaven in a manner which befits his majesty and he and he Azzawajal, is there to accept people's du'as and, and to forgive them and so on and so forth and some of the narrations say that that goes on until the time of Fajr right? until the time of Fajr and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala praises the Fajr prayer in the Quran when he says Inna Quran al-Fajr kana mashhuda that indeed the Quran the recitation of Fajr is something which is witness and we know that it is witness because we know that the Prophet told us وسلم, that that is when the angels descend, the angels of the morning and the evening descend at Fajr time and Asr time. And that is when they come down and that is when they take up the actions of a person and they ascend with them to the heavens. Right? And so those actions are, are done at the time of Fajr and at the time of Asr. And that is, that is why those two times in terms of Salah are extremely important in terms of uh, you know, in terms of their uh, their their virtue and so on, because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala asks those angels, 
How did you leave my servants? And they say, we came to them and they were in salah. We left them and they were in salah. Right? We left them at a time of salah and they were in salah. And we came to them and it was a time of salah and they were in salah. And the Prophet told us, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, concerning the salatul fajr, as we know that the two rak'ahs of fajr, the two sunnahs of fajr, rak'ati al-fajr khayru min al-dunya wa ma fiha. The two rak'ahs of fajr, meaning the two sunnahs of fajr, are better than this world and everything within it. And so the fajr and its position and its status, if you like, and so on, is something which is extremely important. And we know that it is one of the most difficult salawat, one of the most difficult salahs for a person to, to offer and to pray regularly, especially in the summer months when it comes earlier and earlier. And it's something which the Prophet ﷺ told us that it is one of the salahs that the hypocrites, the munafiqeen, struggle most with because of how difficult it is. Right? But the fajr salah is something which is extremely important in our religion and so it being the time of fajr and that what that is what allah is taking an oath by seems to be uh, seems to be what is the case and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best in verse number two then allah subhanahu wa ta'ala continues and he says عشر, and by the ten nights by the ten nights so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking a second oath here so the first oath is by the time of Fajr or by the time of the period of the day that is the Fajr, the daybreak, the dawn. And the second oath that Allah Azza wa is taking here in verse number two is by the ten nights. Now what are those ten nights and what are they, the ones that are being referred to? What are the ones that are being referred to? I will mention first a number of, of statements from amongst the Salaf concerning what it refers to and then we'll speak about it in, in slightly more detail in terms of some of the positions of differences of opinion and so on. So it's reported, for example, that Abdullah ibn Zubayr, uh, radiyallahu anhuma, the famous companion, he said, وَلَيَالٍ أَوَّلُ يَوْمِ The ten days that Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring to, the ten nights that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to, refers to the ten, the first ten days of the Hijjah until the day of Eid. So obviously the day of Eid, Al-Adha being the tenth of the Hijjah. Um, the second position or the second narration is the narration of Qatada rahimullah ta'ala who said something very similar. He said, It is the first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah that is being referred to. And likewise, Mujahid rahimullah ta'ala said something very similar. He said, It is the 10 days of Dhul Hijjah that Allah Azza wa Jal then completed for his Prophet Musa alayhi salatu wassalam. And he's referring to the verse of the Quran which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that the Prophet Musa السلام, after him and Bani Israel they left and escaped from Pharaoh and they were going towards the promised land Allah told the Prophet Musa السلام, instructed him to go and have an appointment with Allah that he would go to the mountain of Atur وَبَعَدْنَا مُوسَى ثَلَاثِينَ لَيْلَةً we, made, we, we, pro- we promised or we, we took a, a promise from him or we agreed with him that he would come for 30 nights and then we added to it another or completed it with another ten so his appointment with his Lord became 40 nights many of the scholars of tafsir were the position or one of the famous positions of tafsir in, in, in that verse is that the 30 days are the days of the Hijjah so the, 30, the first 30 days is the month of the Qa'dah and then the ten that were added were the first 10 days of the Hijjah and so therefore you come to uh, the end of that being the day of Eid al-Adha and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best but that is what Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala said Musruq rahimahullah ta'ala said they are the best days of the year 
عن عطاء رحمه الله تعالى the famous scholar of tafsir from the scriptures of Ibn Abbas رضي الله عنهما and others he said وليالٍ عشر عشر الأضحى they are the ten days of Eid al-Adha when they say the ten days of Eid al-Adha they mean the first ten days of Dhul Hijjah um, the scholars then differed in terms of what it is that it's referring to Imam al-Tabari ta'ala said that these uh, these nights اختلف أهل التأويل في هذه الليالي العشر أي ليال هي he said the scholars of tafsir differed as to what these ten nights are referring to فقال بعضهم some of them said they are the ten nights of the hijjah the ten days of the hijjah now before we continue because one of the positions that we will have and we will mention shortly is that some of the scholars said that it refers to the ten nights of Ramadan the last ten nights of Ramadan the general position is so if the majority of the scholars and this is the majority opinion because the opinion that it is the 10 days of the Hijjah, the first 10 days of the Hijjah, is the position of Ibn Abbas and Ibn Zubayr, Ibn Zubayr radiallahu anhum, and Masruq, and Ikrima, and Mujahid, and Qatada, and many of the other scholars of Tafsir. And you will find the likes of Ibn Kathir and others, they chose this particular position. That is the position of the majority of the scholars of Tafsir. The question here arises, Allah Azza says, and he takes an oath by Layal in Ashr, by the 10 nights. But these scholars are saying that it's the 10 days of the Hijjah. Right? And then you have the position of someone like Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala, who wanted to reconcile between the ahadith that you find that speak about the virtue of the first 10 days of Dhul-Hijjah, which we, one of which we will mention very shortly, and then the virtues that are mentioned for the 10 nights of Ramadan, the last 10 nights of Ramadan, because clearly they are also uh, extremely virtuous nights. So he made the distinction of saying that the best nights of the year are the nights of the last 10 nights of Ramadan. But the best days of the year are the first 10 days of, of Dhul Hijjah. Right? That's the way that he reconciled between those two issues. The question still arises though, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if we take that position of Ibn Qayyim or the position of the majority, Allah Azza wa says the last, the, and he takes an oath by the 10 nights. So how will we switch that to the days? So the position of the majority of the scholars of Tafsir, and it is a well-known construct of the Arabic language, is that when the day is mentioned, the night is included. And when the night is, in, is mentioned, the day is included with it. Right? And that is very common. So for example, if you were to say Thursday, right, you would mean by it the day and the night. Right? You mean by it the day and the night. And so for example, when we say, and the same goes in Arabic, if you say for example, uh, the first day of Ramadan, right? or you say for example, the, uh, I don't know, the, the, the fifth of, of the Hijjah, or whatever it may be, it is understood that when you say that word, the day, it refers to the night and the day. Right? It refers to the night and it refers to the day. Because the night comes before the day in the Arabic or in the, amongst the Arabs and therefore in the way that, that Islam also perceives the day and night to be. So the night always precedes the day. So when someone says day, it refers to night and night it refers to day. So these scholars said it is very common in the Arabic language. That Allah Azza wa would use day and it would include the night, or he would say night and it would include the day. And so, therefore, when they say that it refers to walayal in Ashr, Allah Azza wa uses the word nights, it also includes the day. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. But that is the position of the majority of the scholars and what you will find in the vast majority of the works of tafsir. And it is a very common, like if you go back to the works of tafsir, they will mention to you poetry after poetry after poetry to show that, that it was a very common convention amongst the Arabs that they would do this. And to be honest, it makes a lot of sense because even in English we have something very similar. 
No one usually says, unless you're going to specify a day, you know, you don't say Thursday daytime and nighttime, you just say Thursday and it includes the day and it includes the night. Uh, there's a there's a, a nice question here, it's like a, a riddle that they, they normally mention in the books of fiqh. So the general position is, as we know, that the night always precedes the day. And that's why, you know, maybe the easiest example to understand this is when you look at Ramadan, right, we always begin taraweeh the night before the first of Ramadan. Right? In the Islamic in the Islamic concept, it is the first of Ramadan. Because once Maghrib hits, the day has begun, the next day has begun. So our day begins from Maghrib to Maghrib. That is the 24-hour cycle of the Muslim world, right? Obviously, in, in, in general, you know, in the rest of the world and so on, it is midnight to midnight. But in the Islamic world, or in the Islamic Shari sense, it is from Maghrib to Maghrib. And that's why when, you know, the, the day before we start fasting in Ramadan, the night before, we pray our first Taraweeh, because that is the first night of Ramadan. And that is why on the last day of Ramadan, we don't pray Taraweeh after Maghrib, right? Because that is now the day of Eid. That's going to be in the morning. And so that is how it works generally. There is one exception to this only. One exception. So if you are, for example, to miss that first night of Ramadan and pray the next day, it would be considered to be the second night of Ramadan, not the first night of Ramadan. But there is one occasion in the Sharia where the opposite is done, where the night that comes after the day is counted to be part of the day that preceded and not the other way around. I hope that makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, let me know. So I want I want you to tell me what is that exception in terms of uh, in terms of the nights and the days. So normally the night comes first, and then the day. When Maghrib hits, it is now the following day. But there is one exception to that: that even after the Maghrib of that day, it's not counted towards the next day, but the previous day. There is one exception to this, and it's mentioned in in a number of a hadith, in famous hadith in in Al Bukhari and Muslim and so on, and it's to do with a well-known act of worship as well. So someone can tell me what is the difference. And that's like one of those riddles that they usually give in, 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 in the books of fiqh and so on, that it is an exception to that particular rule. Anyway, so that is the position why the majority of the scholars, even though it is said that Allah calls it nights, that they have no problem saying that it is the first 10 days of the hijjah and the majority of those scholars wouldn't do the wouldn't go to the extent of Ibn Qayyim which is to divide the day and night and say that the nights of the last 10 nights of Ramadan are better than the first 10 days or the last 10 nights of Ramadan are the best nights and the first 10 days of the Hijjah are the best they would just simply say that Allah says the first uh, the first 10 days and nights of the Hijjah are the best of the year and then some of them simply made the exception of Laylatul Qadr they said that is the exception only because Laylatul Qadr is mentioned as being better than a thousand months, but everything else, the general rule still stays, right? The general, as as a ten, they are the best. But then Laylatul Qadr will be the exception, and Allah knows best. Why did the majority of those scholars choose this position? Because of the hadith, the famous hadith of Ibn Abbas radiAllahu anhu in Sahih al-Bukhari, ما من أيام العمل الصالح حب إلى الله فيهن من هذه الأيام. There is no day in which Allah, or no days in which Allah Azza wa Jal loves actions or, or actions are more beloved to him subhanahu wa ta'ala than these days meaning the first 10 days of the hijjah they said oh messenger of allah not even jihad in allah's path he said not even jihad in allah's path except for the one who leaves with all of his wealth and with all of his money and then doesn't return with any of that doesn't return with any of that and so that is the position that the majority of the scholars then chose because of that hadith that there are no actions that are most be, more beloved to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the actions of that day and that's why the majority say that that is the position, what is being referred to here. That it is the first 10 days of Dhul Hijjah. 
that Allah Azzawajal is referring to. Others said it is the first 10 days of Muharram. That's the second position that you will find amongst the scholars of Tafsir, that it is the first 10 days of Al-Muharram. So those scholars who chose the position that it is Muharram, and no doubt Muharram has its position in uh, in our religion. It is something which is a, uh, a it is a well-known month of the year, and it is one of the Ashrul Hurum. It is one of the sacred months of the year. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would fast in the month of Muharram. He would make it an... Uh, you know, you make it uh, a practice of his to fast in the month of Muharram generally. But obviously, there are specific days in the month of Muharram that are also extremely important to fast on, namely the day of Ashura, right? And uh, if you take the position of, of many of the scholars that it is recommended to fast along with the 10th, the 9th as well, and some of them said the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th as well. And so therefore, it's a number of days in the month of Muharram. So Muharram is something which is well known, and we all know the famous story of uh, or the reasoning behind the famous story of the Prophet ﷺ asking the Jewish people of Medina why they fasted on that day and they mentioned it being the day in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or on which Allah Azza saved Musa السلام, and Bani Israel from Pharaoh and his armies. And the Prophet ﷺ said that I have more right to this than you. And so it became in practice amongst them that they would uh, that they would uh, fast and the Prophet ﷺ fasted. In fact, it is even mentioned in the Sunnah, and this is a very important point or interesting point that many people aren't aware of. It is mentioned clearly in the Sunnah, in, in, in Bukhari and Muslim, and other than that, in a number of a hadith, it is mentioned from a number of companions that actually Ashura was fasted by the Muslims even before they came to Medina. It was fasted by them in Mecca. And it was the obligatory fast of the Muslims before Allah prescribed the month of Ramadan because the legislation of Ramadan comes around the second year of the Hijrah. So the second of the Hijrah, meaning the second year in Medina. Before that, the 13 odd years when they were in Mecca, the fasting of one day of the year, which was the day of Ashura, was a practice that was known amongst the Muslims there. And it seems to have been, and Allah Azza wa knows best, something which even the Arabs generally were aware of, that it was a day that they used to hold in high esteem. And so the Prophet ﷺ, when he comes and he asks the Jews for their explanation of fasting that day is not because he doesn't know or is unaware of the importance of Ashura, but because he wants to know their reason. What is their reasoning and their purpose behind fasting that day? He knows why he's doing it, but what is his reason? What is their reason? And then when they mention the issue of Musa alayhi salam, he says we have even more right to it then. Right? We have even more right to it because Musa alayhi salam is one of our prophets and one of the messengers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of the messengers of Islam. So and that's why it's mentioned in a number of narrations, like the narration of, I believe it is Aisha ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum, that they said that we used to fast the day of Ashura. And then when Allah Azzawajal placed Ramadan upon us, Ashura became a sunnah, it became a recommended act of worship. Whoever wants to fast can do so, whoever doesn't want to fast doesn't have to do so. But we know that the Prophet wasallam then in the year before he passed away, he said that if I live until the next year, I would fast along with the 10th, the 9th as well. I will fast the ninth as well, so that it would be different to the way the other religions may fast on that particular day. Uh, and then the Prophet ﷺ passed away in that year, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But anyway, that is like uh, clearly a position, and so therefore the uh, you know the fasting or the or the layal in Ashr in this verse being the first in days of Muharram is something which some of the scholars consider to be noteworthy. And the third position that you will find also is that it is the Ashrul Awakhiri min Ramadan. The Ashrul Awakhiri min Ramadan, the last 10 nights of Ramadan, and that's considered to be the position of a Dahak 
rahimahullah ta'ala and the reasoning behind that would be that it would be the uh, the nine, the, the ten days of Ramadan, obviously because of the virtues that are mentioned in the last ten nights of Ramadan in terms of Laylatul Qadr and, and everything else and the Prophet ﷺ making itikaf and so on, its virtues are well known and it's not, you know, we don't really need to go over them uh, and that's the position that was chosen by some of them, in fact there is even a narration of Ibn Abbas anhuma, and this could possibly be taken as a fourth position, is that it's referring to the first ten nights of Ramadan or the first ten days of Ramadan the first 10 nights or the first 10 days when we say nights and days essentially the same thing the first 10 of Ramadan and that is also a position that you will find mentioned in some of the books of Tafsir as is ascribed to Ibn Abbas and so Ibn Abbas has this one and he has that one he has one with the majority and that is referring to the 10 of the Hijjah and then he has some other narrations that are mentioned in this regard as well but the position of the majority, as we said, the position of the majority of the scholars of Islam is that the layal in Ashr, the ten that are being referred to, are the first ten days of the Hijjah. And as we mentioned, the Arabs considered the night to be the day, the day to be the night. And so they didn't take the meaning of the word nights, the ten nights, to be literal. But they meant, they took it as a meaning that it signifies the 24-hour period of the day and the night. And that Allah sometimes calls it this, and sometimes... He calls it that, and that is the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often, you know, uh, speaks in terms of, uh, and the Arabs generally speak in terms of their language anyway, and Allah azza wa often in the Quran follows the conventions that the Arabs had because it was re- revealed the Quran, as we know, in a clear Arabic language, or a clear Arabic language that the Arabs would be able to understand. And Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, after mentioning these different positions, he said, and the correct position amongst us is that it is the 10 days of the hijjah and this is a very interesting point. He says, because of the ijma', the consensus that the scholars of tafsir have upon this point. Even though Imam al-Tabari himself mentioned other positions, right? He mentioned the one about the ten of Muharram and so on. But once he narrated the narrations of Ibn Abbas and Mujahid and Ikrimah and those major scholars of tafsir, he said, because all of them agree that it is the ten, right? And he didn't really name the scholars who said that it's Muharram and so on. He didn't really mention them by name. And so this is, uh, I think we mentioned this position before, that it is very common amongst the early scholars, that when they would say that it is ijma' upon a point, they wouldn't necessarily mean in the way that you get in the usul al-fiqh texts of today, or the later usul al-fiqh texts rather, that say that all of the scholars unanimously have to agree on a point, and even if one disagrees, that it can't be considered ijma'. In fact, you don't find that to be the very common convention amongst the early scholars of the Salaf in the way that they would use the word ijma'. But they would use it in the sense, as we've mentioned before, and Imam al-Tabri is a very good uh, example of this because he does it numerous times in his tafsir. He will often mention the differences because one of the, you know, one of the ways that people try to get out of this then is that, oh, but Imam al-Tabri maybe wasn't aware of other opinions, so he called it ijma'. Unaware that there's a different opinion that's differing. But Imam al-Tabri often mentions other positions as well. And then he will still say, because there is ijma' upon this. And so the early scholars of Tafsir were often referred to ijma' as being the well-known, well-held consensus amongst the vast majority of the scholars of Islam. And the fact that one or two scholars may have differed, one or two scholars may have, have taken a different position, is not something which deterred them from calling it ijma' because they just considered that one scholar or two or three scholars, the, the very small minority, to have erred, to have made a mistake, to have misunderstood. And there are many examples of this in, in, in issues of fiqh as well, where sometimes al-Hasan al-Basri was the only one, for example, to have 
a different position or someone else, one of the tabi'in or another scholars, and the scholars would still consider it to be an issue of ijma' and they would still say it is ijma' or it is the, the widely held agreement of the scholars and they wouldn't really look at that one or two who differed. And similarly here with Imam al-Tabari is essentially saying this is by ijma' I've chosen this position because the vast majority of the early statements of the scholars in the tafsir of this verse all point to it being the ten of the hijjah and this shows to you a very important methodology in tafsir, in hadith, in aqidah, in fiqh, in many many different issues right? what he's referring to here is a well-known convention amongst the scholars that if you have a body of texts, you have numerous narrations from amongst many of the scholars of Islam the early, and especially we're talking about here, the early scholars, the companions, the tabi'een, the students, we're referring to those three generations because after that you have many wide and varying differences of opinion that occurred in the early generations, especially in the time of the companions and their students, the tabi'een, the first two generations of Muslims, they more or less agreed on a point. For someone to come and say, yeah, but that's probably a weak point, and there's some, that's something which shows like there's a, a, a problem in the methodology of the way that that knowledge is being sought and the way that it's being understood. And that's something which you find amongst the, you know, the statements of Imam Ahmad and others. They would place a great deal of importance upon the statements of the scholars who came before them. Imam Ahmad if he doesn't find a hadith or something, he doesn't just come up with his own position, he looks at what was the general position amongst the companions and amongst the tabi'in. And he would give a, a great deal of weight to that because clearly they are closer to the time of revelation and the understanding of the Quran and the Sunnah and so on and so forth. And so here this is a good example of that that you find here in the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala. He says, it is the first in days of Eid al-Adha due to the evidence of there being ijma' upon this from the scholars of tafsir even though he mentioned himself that there is a difference of opinion and that's an important issue to understand because uh, sometimes it is, it is not correct good etiquette when we go to the books of the Salaf and we see that they, one of them said that there's ijma' on an issue like Imam al-Tabari here and then someone says, yeah, but I actually made a mistake because actually in this book you will find a different opinion. Imam al-Tabari knows, right? He often mentions it himself. But it's to understand their methodology and the terminology and the way that they use it and what is meant by it. And that it's not necessarily the, the technical definition that is given sometimes by those scholars who came later. So the Usuli scholars have a very technical, you know, it's a very, very technical way of, of speaking. And obviously definitions have to be all-encompassing and all this. And they have like their own way of defining terms and so on. But the early scholars don't necessarily abide by the terminology of someone who came four, five, six hundred years after they passed away. Anyway, that was a slight uh, slight digress. But those are the first two verses of Surah Al-Fajr, inshallah ta'ala. And I think that's probably a good place to stop before we continue, inshallah ta'ala, next week with verses three onwards. Uh, Sumaira is asking, was it Surah Al-Asr or Surah Al-Duha? We said that about it that it is meant the whole daytime or specific part of the day i didn't realize it was surah al-asr as well so surah al-asr was the same because the scholars differed as to whether it's all of time because asr can mean time in general or whether it's a specific part of the day and likewise surah al-duha was similar also because some of the scholars said it refers to that part of the morning that is the duha time and others said that it's referring to all of the day and so you find both of those positions uh, amongst them why was the most prominent, more prominent opinion 10 days when the word is used normally to describe the night? So that's essentially what we're, what we're referring to here, right? That's essentially what we're referring to here. And then some of you have just sent me Laylatul Qadr, Day of Arafah, Arafah. I think you need to give me slightly more uh, detail than just uh, Laylatul Qadr if you're answering the question that I asked. 
answering the question that I mentioned about when does which day is it that the night doesn't that you don't follow the night before, but it takes the ruling of the day before, uh, or the night takes the ruling of the day before as opposed to the day after. Uh, you need to give me slightly more detail than just a one-word answer. Okay, um, are you referring to the morning of Laylatul Qadr and the hadith that says it belongs to the night before? No, so it's not Laylatul Qadr. So that's not the verse. That's not. That's not what it's being referred to, because there's no like hukum. There's no like ruling that you know that, that you need to take from that morning. So whether you see the sign of it being Laylatul Qadr, it doesn't make a difference really. It's still the, the night before and the, the morning after. Uh, doesn't it doesn't make a difference in terms of a ruling? So we're talking about a fiqh ruling, right? We're talking about an action uh, in terms of something that you have to do or don't do. There is one exception to that rule. So, for example, if you were to uh, want to pray, um, you know, want to pray, uh, for example, uh, witr or whatever, right? The witr of that of that evening because it starts from the time of, of maghrib, and that's why, by the way, majority many of the scholars. Uh, yeah, so if you if you're to pray the witr of that day, you're praying it at Fajr or before Fajr time. It's not going to be counted the witr of the next day, right? It's going to be counted for that night. But we're referring to an action now that even if you're doing it during that night, doesn't really, doesn't go on to the next day, so the morning of the next day, but refers to the day that came before it. So if you're praying witr now, just say someone's going to pray witr now, this would be the witr of the next day, right? So we're on Tuesday night, so it will be the withdrawal up to Wednesday. What would be the withdrawal of yesterday? But there is one action which even if you do on the night now, it will still refer to the time before Maghrib, before Maghrib hit on this day, as opposed to it following on to the next day. There is one uh, action that's referring to, I don't know if that's the easiest or the clearest way that I've mentioned and explained that, but anyway, um, inshallah, if, if it's something which doesn't come to you today, then inshallah you can mention it to me next week. It's a good thing to look at. And the scholars would actually like, you know, they, this is one of the things that they would do in their lessons and their classes. These types of like, you know, like odd kind of pearls or riddles or the odd exception to a rule. So you have a rule that is always the same, but then there's one exception. Right? And there's a number of instances that you will find that within the works of fiqh and so on. When you have that to memorize and understand, that's very, very like, it's very important because that's like the only exception to a general rule. So once you've understood that that's the exception, then inshallah the rest of the rule is always going to be there for you, right? And so that's essentially you've taken off like a whole thing off the table because you've understood understood that particular exception. If you don't understand the exception though, then someone can come and say something and you're not really sure because you're not sure if that's the case or not. Anyway, so inshallah we will conclude there. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu ala wa ajma'in. وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين